For nearly 30 years past, these visions have been given with greater or less frequency and have been witnessed by many, oftentimes by unbelievers as well as those believing them. They generally, but not always, occur in the midst of earnest seasons of religious interest, while the Spirit of God is specially present, if those can tell who are in attendance. The time Mrs. White is in this condition has varied from 15 minutes to 180. During this time, the heart and pulse continue to beat, the eyes are always wide open and seem to be gazing at some far distant object and are never fixed on any person or thing in the room. They are always in passing into vision, she gives three enrapturing shouts of glory, which echo and re-echo, the second, and especially the third, fainter but more thrilling than the first. The voice resembling... For 40 years after her first vision, Ellen White would often have very public and very physical manifestations of visionary experiences. And what you're hearing now are some of the written eyewitness accounts of people who saw her in vision. On entering vision, her muscles become rigid, her joints fixed, so far as any external force can influence them. At the same time, her movements and gestures, which are frequent, are free and graceful and cannot be hindered nor controlled by the strongest person. For about four or five seconds, she seems to drop down like a person in a swoon, or one having lost his strength. She then seems to be instantly filled with superhuman strength, sometimes rising at once to her feet and walking about the Russian. There's no ghastly look or any resemblance of fainting. The brightest light may be suddenly brought near her eyes, or faints made as if to thrust something into the eye, and there's never the slightest wink or change of expression on that account, and it is sometimes hours and even days after she comes out of this condition before she recovers her natural sight. She says it seems to her that she comes back into a dark world, yet her eyesight is in no wise injured by her visions. A physician was present and made such examination of her as his wisdom and learning dictated to find the cause of the manifestation. A lighted candle was held close to her eyes, which were wide open, not a muscle of the eye moved. He then examined her in regard to her pulse, and also in regard to her breathing, and there was no respiration. The result was that he was satisfied that it could not be accounted for on natural or scientific. She is utterly unconscious of everything going on around her while she is in vision, having no knowledge whatever of what is said and done in her presence. A person may pinch her flesh and do things which would cause great and sudden pain in her ordinary condition, and she will not notice it by the slightest tremor. put my hand on her chest sufficiently long to know that there was no more heaving of the lungs than there would have been had she been a corpse. I then took my hand and placed it over her mouth, pinching her nostrils between my thumb and forefinger so that it was impossible for her to exhale or inhale air even if she had desired to do so. I held her thus with my hand about ten minutes long enough for her to suffocate under ordinary circumstances. She was not in the least affected by this ordeal. In this condition, she often speaks words and short sentences, yet not the slightest breath escapes. When she goes into this condition, there is no appearance of... As they closed this part of the examination, she arose to her feet, still in vision, holding a Bible high up, turning from passage to passage, quoting correctly, although the eyes were looking upward and away from the book. She had a view of the seven last plagues. I might mention many other items of like nature, but space forbids. 
These things can be proved by any amount of testimony, and we confidently affirm that they are of such a character that they could not be accomplished by deception. That Ellen had visions, and that they sometimes occurred in this way, is one of the things that many Adventists and many people familiar with Ellen White know about. But what we didn't know is that there were other people having visions during this time. A lot of them. From Types and Symbols, this is The Conflict Audible. I'm Ivan. And I'm Livy. And today on our show... Prophets and Prophets. There were other visionaries. Um, They existed. This is Kevin. Yeah, my name is Kevin Burton, and I am concurrently a doctoral candidate in American Religious History at Florida State University. And I am also an instructor in the History and Political Science Department at Southern Adventist University. Kevin is one of the consultants on our show, and he's actually the first person who ever told me that there were other visionaries. I mean, I had heard something about Foss and Foy, who were two men within the Advent movement who claimed to have had similar visions to Ellen before she did. But literally, before December of this past year, I had no idea there were so many more people. In my conversation with Michael Campbell for our first episode, he mentioned that there were at least 50 other visionaries during Ellen White's time. We'll use that term, visionaries, throughout the episode to refer to people who claimed to have been given visions or other similar revelations from God. So in the 19th century, um, there are people fairly commonly who claim to have visions and visionary experiences, or maybe even something close like dreams. And so it's not uncommon or surprising for historians or people who get into the actual sources of the era to see this. It's actually quite common. I am not a historian. No, you're not. And I find this incredibly surprising. I think I'm just very surprised that I am this old and had never heard about this before. Yeah, and it seems like an important piece of context. Like, if Ellen was just one of many making these claims, what does that mean? In the very fundamental sense about Ellen White being a prophet, that is in no way unique to her. She is just one of many and I think that raises interesting questions and important questions. Uh, namely, if, if that is the case, how can we know that Ellen White was actually called by God and used by the Lord as his messenger? How can we know that? And I think that's an important question to address. Let's just look at some comparisons, right? So if you look at the way that Ellen White has her visions, like through physical manifestations, etc., I mean, we know that like... There's the famous story about her holding up the Bible. Often and more commonly, there are those stories where, like, she appeared to not be breathing. Other people write sworn statements that she was in that sort of position or physical state. And you have doctors sometimes that attest to these kinds of things, or at least James White, he's definitely attesting to these kinds of things as well. And that isn't common to all prophets in the 19th century by any means, but there are other people who had such experiences. So, for example, there's a man named John P. Weeks, who got sick for several days in 1838. During his sickness, he receives this vision, and he's taken sort of in the spirit. He describes it sort of like an out-of-body experience. Um, And he's taken into the heavenly realms and and led around by an angel. And uh, he ends up writing this down and publishing his narrative on a broadside. A broadside is like a poster. This is the kind of thing that would have been put up in public. It's not very well known, but he ends up publishing it in 1843. On that broadside, he's got the sworn testimonies of over 30 different witnesses who saw him in this sort of experience. 
Um, and he also has two doctors who testify to his state. And these witnesses, they write and they say that during his visionary experiences and during his sickness, his breath was short and his pulse could not be found. They say that his body goes cold. Blood is sort of pooling underneath his fingernails. They actually are testifying that it seems as though he is very, very near death. Um, and then, of course, all of a sudden, he is he's well. <laughs> he sort of just says, I'm hungry now, and gets out of bed and, and starts to go on his way. There are major differences with a story like that in Ellen White, but nevertheless, there are some similarities in the very sort of casual sense of, like, the physical manifestations. There's another example that hits closer to home that Adventists might be more familiar with, and that's William Foy. Um, and a lot of Adventists today, and maybe most, they actually believe that Foy is a genuine prophet. So Ellen White had visions. We know about her. But growing up, I also briefly heard that there were two other people who were given similar visions before her. Foy was one of those, though he was always mentioned as a sort of by-the-way kind of thing. The way I learned about him, he was mostly significant because he was part of Ellen White's story. Foy actually has the same thing. He has uh, several witnesses testify that for one of his visions that lasted about two and a half hours and another one that lasted 12 hours, um, he was apparently in an inanimate condition and kind of near death. You know, he has a doctor testify, Henry Cummins, who says that he couldn't find a pulse anywhere uh, on his body or no signs of life except for kind of around his heart. And so that's another example. Like I said, I'd heard of Foy, but not of John P. Weeks or Miss Blaisdell, Dorinda Baker, Emily Clemens Pearson, Mary Hamlin, Sarah Jordan, Phoebe Knapp, Clorinda S. Minor, all people having visions. In preparing this episode, I've had to reconfigure a few things I had thought about Ellen White. Growing up, I had thought that she was remarkable for having visions, visions which included physical manifestations. And by having physical manifestations, I mean actually having physical manifestations. Like, when people told me about the eyewitness accounts, the stories of doctors examining her, it seemed like it was supposed to verify that this kind of supernatural event was really happening. But in realizing how many other people not only claimed the same experience, but also had similar endorsements, it makes me question. Like, either people endorsing things doesn't really mean that much, and maybe some of it is true, but maybe some of it isn't, or maybe there could have really been this many people actually having these experiences. And for whatever reason it was that I thought Ellen White was unique for this, it just isn't true. So whenever I evaluate Ellen White, I have come to the conclusion in my own study and research that I shouldn't worry about that. The physical manifestations, they might be interesting. I think they can be important, and I think they they have a role to play in in understanding our, our heritage. But nevertheless, that is not why I believe that Ellen White is a true prophet. I do not believe she's a true prophet because she held up a vision, a Bible and vision. You know, she very well may have done so and, and probably did. And that is that is an amazing thing. But I mean, think about it from the Bible's perspective, right? Look at, uh, look at Moses and the Exodus, and you can see that uh, God was going to use him, and he did use him to, to lead the Israelites out of bondage. But the first couple of plagues that were going to be put on the Egyptians if they didn't free the Israelites, uh, they were copied, right? So those physical kind of manifestations uh, were copied in instances in the Bible. So this shouldn't surprise us that that has happened or that did happen in the 19th century. If you've grown up with the general impression that these visions and physical manifestations were what confirmed Ellen as a prophet, I think there are three possible responses. 
One, you can hold to the idea that these manifestations really are indications of God at work. So that opens up the possibility of accepting all these other people and ideas as genuinely God-inspired. Two, you can find it a bit discrediting. It looks like visions were having something of a moment. Probably Ellen wasn't really a prophet, she was just the product of her time, caught up in some weird religious trend, probably a hoax. Three, and I think this is what Kevin is getting at here and also seems closer to what Ellen herself believed, you can think that all of it is indeed supernatural, but some of it is good supernatural and some of it is bad supernatural. I mean, I guess there's also the possibility of some good supernatural, some bad supernatural, and some just run-of-the-mill hoax, too. So maybe four things. But of all these people who are out there having visions like it's the end of the world, how do we know which ones exactly are good supernatural? Or at least, how has the Adventist church understood it? If Ellen White is not remarkable for having visions, why is she remarkable? What does make her different? I think that whenever you look at these prophets in the physical manifestations, one of the major differences, probably the major difference that you see, is someone like John P. Weeks and and William Foy, they don't continue to have visions throughout their, their life and career. And so that's something that Ellen White does do, and that's quite different than some of these other people. There's only probably, I think there's only two other sort of prophets that you can say were as successful um, in the 19th century, and that would be Mary Baker Eddy, who's the founder of the Christian Science Church, and also um, Joseph Smith, who is the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, which most people call Mormons. Those are two instances where you have successful prophets who also continued to work in sort of a prophetic role throughout their career, and they gathered a successful and sizable following that continues to this day. My name is David Holland. I'm a professor of American Religious History at the Harvard Divinity School. I also serve on the Committee for the Study of Religion at Harvard University and the Committee on American Studies. David is currently in the process of writing a book about Ellen White and Mary Baker Eddy, one of these other successful prophets. And he's spent a lot of his career exploring these questions of inspiration. Sure. I've actually had a long interest in Ellen White and in the origins of Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, My first book was on the question of continuing revelation and inspiration and how that factored into an American religious landscape that was often committed to a very closed canon of scripture. And Ellen White is somebody who had prophecy, vision, inspiration, but also upheld the canon of the Bible, served as a really interesting case study for that early research. And that's led to ongoing interest in uh, white and Adventism, including my current project, which I'm just about to conclude, a comparative study of Ellen White and Mary Baker Eddy as to roughly contemporary 19th century Americans who both wrestled with some of the same kinds of religious challenges but came to very different sorts of answers. This concept of canon that David referenced, you may have heard it used in a few different contexts, like especially pop culture universes, but in Christianity it refers to the Christian Bible, what is held within that collection of books. Most Protestant Christian traditions hold that the canon is closed, that the books that made it in are the books that made it in, and that is all we need. With it, God sufficiently reveals himself to us. What got you interested in this? Like, what is your own uh, background? So, a lot of it has to do with my own religious identity. Uh, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and have been a practicing 
Latter-day Saint my whole life. But a lot of it is a purely scholarly interest in questions of religious, what we might call epistemology. How do we know God's mind and will? So David is part of a pretty small group of scholars outside of Adventism who study Ellen White in depth. He mentions that Ellen White sometimes shows up as part of broader studies, but the kind of focused research about her that he does is pretty rare. And as you heard, David is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was founded by Joseph Smith. So given that he's writing a book about Ellen White and Mary Baker Eddy, he has a good perspective on these three major 19th century visionary figures, how they relate to other visionaries of the time and to each other. Certainly the, the question of inspiration was broadly debated and different kinds of forms of spiritual gifts were widely manifest across the American cultural landscape. So you have lots of people claiming to have had visions. You just start to go through the journals and magazines of the 19th century, and you can't go very far without running into some kind of claim to visionary experience. And so in that respect, people like White and Smith and Eddie are part of a fairly common cultural phenomenon that expected God to be providing these kinds of gifts and experiences to faithful seekers. I would say that the three people that you mentioned, White and Smith and Eddie, are pretty unique, though, in their own way, which is that usually these visionary experiences amounted to a kind of one-time special phenomenon that did not result in the founding of a faith movement, that did not result in texts that people continue to study for religious inspiration. That is actually remarkably rare. Why, in your understanding, have they persisted where others didn't, or other visionary movements didn't turn into things like that? Well, first of all, I think it's in the quality of the product, quite honestly. I mean, if you think about the great texts produced by these prophets, the Book of Mormon and Smith's case, Science and Health in Eddie's case, and you know, the Conflict of the Ages series for White, in addition to many other things she wrote, those are just remarkably effective texts at accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish. And so it's sort of like asking, you know, why does one author gain a following and others don't? Sometimes it's just in the way that a particular product resonates with its audience. But they also have a grand sense of purpose. There's a real idea of global significance. So it's the, that combination of the power and the intrinsic artistry of the message and the timing and receptivity of the culture. And in some cases, including the three that we just mentioned, that takes off. The other part of this is the success of building institutions around it. And of course, you know, Ellen White had this close working relationship with James, her husband, and with Joseph Bates. She's connected to a team of people that were quite skillful in putting institutional bones underneath visionary flesh. And that's a combination that has proven remarkably successful. Okay, so one thing that sets Ellen White apart from the other visionaries of the time is simply that she had a lot more than a few visions. 
And also, for whatever reason, she and the people around her, the other founders of the Adventist Church, James, her husband, and Joseph Bates, they were able to turn these visions into something bigger, something institutional. As Kevin put it, she was successful. Or, to borrow some common phrasing used within Adventism, the fruit of Ellen White's prophetic ministry helps give it legitimacy. But the same can be said about Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy and the institutions around them. And just to give us a sense of scale, the Church of Christian Science, while they don't report their numbers, has had their membership estimated at between 100,000 and 400,000. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a few years back reported a little over 16 million members. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church reports a little over 21 million members. Now, the Church of Christian Science might seem pretty small compared, but again, we don't actually have reported numbers. And from the Adventist perspective, size isn't really any indication of correct belief. But maybe more significantly, the membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the membership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church are both minuscule compared to the estimated 7.8 billion people in the world. The Adventist Church, which is at least reporting the highest numbers of these three, makes up less than 0.3% of the global population. Which is all to say, these three movements have all persisted. Whether or not they're big, they have persisted and provided meaning to their members. So in that sense, they have each been successful. So again, one thing that makes Ellen White different than the other visionaries of the time is that she was successful. But what makes her different from the other people who were successful? To start off with, and this is not the most significant difference, I asked David if there was anything particular about her visionary style. Yeah, I would say she's in a category of visionary experience in the sense that hers usually came in the form of images, scenes that she saw. And then when she came out of her kind of visionary state, her trance-like state, then it was up to her to sort of reflect on those scenes, on those images, and, and through ongoing inspiration or divine help and also her own rational capacities to determine what the meaning of those scenes were, what the meanings were. That is a, a sort of genre of visionary experience that is not unique to her. Uh, there are other, other figures, including in the Latter-day Saint tradition, that exemplify that kind of very visual sort of revelation uh, that then requires interpretation. There are other kinds of visionary experience, a, a fairly common one, including people like Sarah Edwards, who is the wife of the most prominent Protestant uh, theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, described a vision in which she saw God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, in a really vivid way that changed her life and her understanding mm. of her relationship to divinity. You know, fast forward to a contemporary of Ellen White's, Charles Finney, who's one of the great revivalists of the 19th century. He described a similar encounter with Jesus Christ. So sometimes it's sort of that interpersonal encounter that this form takes. Sometimes it's the hearing of a message, a divine message, that doesn't come with anything visual, but is in fact a dialogue with an unseen presence. So there's a whole range of what we might call categories of, of visionary experience. Uh, and Ellen White has a particular visionary style, and that style is not unique to her, but it is distinguishable from some of the other styles that we see in the 19th century. 
What was it like for Mary Baker Eddy and Joseph Smith? So Mary Baker Eddy was sort of less visionary in terms of having visionary experiences. For her, it was about the intellectual discovery of truth, aided by the Holy Spirit. She talked about this in terms of revelation, but she didn't really have like a sensory experience. David said she's almost in a category that looks more similar to the transcendentalists. For Joseph Smith, you actually have a couple of different modes. He, like Charles Finney and like Sarah Edwards, has kind of interpersonal encounters with divine beings. His first vision was that kind of interview with God and Jesus, not entirely dissimilar from Edwards's or Finney's. But he also has these sort of moments where he is hearing and perceiving the voice of God uh, without an actual visual presence as part of that. So he exemplifies a couple of those kind of visionary genres in that respect. Outside of the particular style of visionary experience, like whether it's a visual or conversational or hearing the voice of God, I was curious still about these physical manifestations. Like, do we know much about other people with the eyes open, not breathing thing going on? And David made an interesting point, which is that most prophetic figures just didn't place the same level of emphasis on what was happening to their bodies during the moment of vision. So you certainly would have people describing trance-like states as part of their vision. But the level of emphasis, the level of detail, the level of repetition by which these states were experienced in the stories of people putting their hands over her mouth or plugging her nose and including her own husband, that is distinctive to Ellen White and certainly distinctive among the three people that we've been mentioning. She's unlike Smith or Eddie in that respect, very much so. The idea that Ellen White, or more accurately, the movement around her, stressed the physical manifestations is kind of challenging for me. As we've discussed, her visionary style isn't unique to her, nor are her physical manifestations. And apparently, physical manifestations aren't really that helpful in determining truthfulness. So if it was stressed in Adventism, why was it stressed? The question of whether something needs to be unique to really be divine, or if there are other manifestations of the same kinds of phenomena, does that somehow undermine its claim to divinity? I'm of the school of thought to suggest that if God is in fact behind a claim, then there's not necessarily any reason to believe that God would not also be preparing a culture to receive and to appreciate what they're encountering from the prophet. People sort of experience religion in a certain kind of vocabulary. You have to kind of be familiar with the language of vision or the experience of trance in order to make sense of somebody who comes along and says, you know, God has been speaking through this form. So I understand the question, I understand what you're saying, and I have a certain level of sympathy to say, you know, if there are other people who are also exhibiting this, does that really mean that I should base my faith on the fact that she could go for a long time without breathing? I mean, I think that just Theologically, I think that's a, not a, necessarily a great thing to rest questions of eternal weight on in the first place, but I don't think the fact that others were also doing it is proof that she was fraudulent. Most people we've talked to have pointed to the content of what Ellen White wrote as a thing that really shows whether or not she's genuine. 
and there were many people during her time, herself included, who made the point that you should compare her writings against the Bible. And that's how you'll know if she's genuine. But reading some of these eyewitness accounts, it sounds like there were many people who did make up their minds based on the physical manifestations. And is it okay that people believe the right thing for the wrong reasons? Is that better than believing the wrong thing for the right reasons? I don't know. So one of the interesting things that David mentioned to me that I didn't know before was that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they currently have a prophet. Like after Joseph Smith died, they ended up with a successor, and every prophet is succeeded by another. They have, in their faith tradition, an ongoing spirit of prophecy. And in some ways, without fully understanding how that works or what it all means, that makes more sense to me. And lately, as we've been working on the show, I've started to feel like there is some kind of conspicuous absence of other officially endorsed prophets in Adventism. So I asked Kevin about that. One of the things that sort of get to this question that most Adventists don't know is that Ellen White wasn't the only prophet that Seventh-day Adventists accepted as a genuine prophet. And let me clarify that. She is definitely number one. (laughs) Um, She is definitely the the most important. But um, think about this really quickly. I already mentioned William Foy. There are many Adventists. In fact, I would say probably most Adventists who understand enough of Adventist history will say that William Foy was a genuine prophet. And he had visions that were very similar to Ellen White. But there were many others, actually. Um, If you start to count, you can probably get to more than a dozen. Like a a dozen that the church believed were genuine prophets? At at least a a dozen that the church endorsed as sort of... Wow. Yeah. And so, and let me give you tangible examples and, and even sources so that you can know that I'm not making stuff up here. So in 1862, Mary E. Cornell published a book called Miraculous Powers. And that book has a longer subtitle, and I don't remember what that is right now. The subtitle is The Scripture Testimony on the Perpetuity of Spiritual Gifts, Illustrated by Narratives of Incidents and Sentiments Carefully Compiled from the Eminently Pious and Learned of Various Denominations. Miraculous Powers is basically a book that's covering all sorts of spiritual gifts, and it's gathering statements from theologians throughout history who have affirmed that spiritual gifts continue, but it also has numerous examples throughout that book about miracles happening in their lifetime, um, like or very, very close to it, like in the late, like in the 18th century or the 19th century. And so you have examples of miraculous healings, you have examples of, of visions and prophets and dreams, and those are the ones that we're concerned with right now. And so that book comes out, it's published by the Adventist Church, it's published uh, in Battle Creek in 1862, and James White himself writes the preface to that book. And in that book, there are three prophets that are named, that have visions, etc., J.B. Finley, Dr. Bond, and William Tennant. And sort of the purpose of why they're doing this is they're wanting to affirm that what Ellen White has is genuine. Because if we're going to argue, as they did, that the spiritual gifts are present in the church, then you have to be able to show that it's not entirely unique to one person. And here's a short summary of the three visionaries Kevin mentioned. J.B. Finley gets sick with an awful fever. Folks try to heal him, but it goes on for a week, and his family assumes he is about to die. On the verge of death, he goes into vision, and in his vision is transported to heaven, and while in heaven, he sees a winged baby that really makes an impression on him. In that moment, he begins to shout, clapping his hands, and springs from his bed, instantly healed. 
Dr. Bond, while walking through a field, has a vision of being in a room in which he sees a man for whose salvation he is worried. In this vision, a voice tells him, Go tell C that he has an offer of salvation for the last time. Dr. Bond is reluctant to do this, but he does it, and C calls upon God. And William Tennant is assumed dead for three days, but shockingly comes back to life. He's a little bit amnesic for a while, but later remembers everything, and when asked what he experienced while in his not-quite-dead state, he describes something like going to heaven. While in heaven, though, he is told that he must return to Earth, and he says that for the next three years of his life, whenever he was awake, he could still hear the sounds of the songs of the hallelujahs and the words uttered there. The Adventist Church then prints a second edition of Miraculous Powers, 13 years later, in 1875. And by that point, they've added a whole bunch more prophets. You have people like Joseph Hoag. Um, you have an unnamed person, which some people attribute to Charles Barnard. You have Ursula Southill, who is known as Mother Shipton. Um, you have L.W. Lewis, and they, they add again, they keep J.B. Finley, Dr. Bond, and William Tennant, but, and they also add George Fox, who is the founder of the Quakers. And they oh, add really? Phoebe, yeah, they, they add George Fox there, and they also include Phoebe Palmer, who is one of the founders of the holiness movement, not necessarily a denomination, but it will sort of coalesce in things like the Salvation Army. And so you have a longer list than 1875. And then the final edition of Miraculous Powers came out in 1901. And this was published, I mean, all of these were published by the Adventist Church, but this was part of the Berean Library. So this is part of an actual like special library of books that they distributed to churches to put in their local libraries, etc. And they kept most of those people, but they removed Mother Shipton and William Tennant. Kevin thinks that one of the reasons for this is that Shipton had wrongly predicted the end of the world, though a few years after the world didn't end, it was discovered that her erroneous prediction had been fabricated by someone who had republished her work. She herself had been dead since the 1500s. And Kevin mentions that all of these visions were also included and published in the Adventist Review and Herald, what was then the official voice of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So not only was it this one book with three editions that were intended as part of church libraries, it was also in the official church communication. I mean, at least in the past, we recognized that we needed to demonstrate that the spiritual gifts were going and, and being used beyond Ellen White. And I don't know how I personally view these visions now. Most of them were never refuted, right? So Adventists did sort of abandon at least Mother Shipton, and you could argue for William Tennant sort of being abandoned as well. But nevertheless, I think that you can say that the others never were abandoned, um, at least by our pioneers. But they were never continued to be promoted either. And so this is why Adventists today don't know who they are. And this is also why I would not endorse them. I would also not endorse them because I'm not sure of the veracity of these experiences. A quick note. It seems that Ellen herself had opinions on some contemporary visionaries. We don't know if she speaks to any of the people mentioned in Miraculous Powers, but we do know that she spends a lot of her life combating fanaticism, which, as she and others at the time used the term, described a range of spiritual beliefs or behaviors that were deemed strange and unbiblical. Some of these behaviors included crawling on the floor to cultivate humility, being guided by impressions, dancing while singing the word glory over and over and over, refusing to work, and also, at times, physical manifestations of visionary experiences. Going back to your original question, how on earth can we know, or why do I know at least, how have I come to the conclusion that Ellen White is different than these other prophets? Well, first of all, I think, I don't believe Ellen White is unique. 
And that is only because of how I define the word unique. I think that unique would mean that she's the only one having visions, and so she's clearly not. But she is different, and she had a special role to play and a different role to play that impacted the world in a different way than everybody else. And I think that's where you start to see a difference here. And so I look at it and I recognize that all of these people, whether or not they were a prophet for a short period of time, maybe we could call them minor prophets, or some of these sort of major prophets like Ellen White, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, and Joseph Smith, all of them have authority, right? They all exercise authority in some way, shape, or form because they have this experience and they, they want to share it and they want people to know that it's genuine or what they perceive to be genuine. And so that is not unique to in, any one of them. They're all going to do that. And you can see Ellen White exercising her authority in various ways, and you can see all of the rest of them doing the same thing. But this is where it starts to become important for me, because the way Ellen White exercises her authority is radically different than the way that other prophets exercise their authority in the 19th century, or at least compared to the major prophets. For example, Mary Baker Eddy um, has her experiences. She starts to build up Christian science in the 1870s and 1880s, and uh, churches develop it slowly, etc., and they, they spread around the U.S. And in 1895, Mary Baker Eddy is going to actually declare that all Christian science churches, all of their services must use her book, Science and Health, as their pastor. In other words, Mary Baker Eddy forbids any extemporaneous preaching or praying in the churches. She sort of consolidates spiritual authority within her writings. When you do that, of course, the Bible is being supplanted by Science and Health, her book. When you look at Joseph Smith, he spends much of his life working on creating alternative scriptures as well. In March 1830, he publishes uh, the Book of Mormon, which most people know about if they know anything about the Latter-day Saints. It's not not a direct replacement for scriptures necessarily, but it sort of helps to correct the mistakes that Smith believed were in the Bible and sort of move beyond it in significant ways. It answers lots of questions that people had during the time. But there are also other texts that the LDS Church uses that are authoritative in the same way the Book of Mormon is, or very close. You have a variety of scriptures there, holy writings, sacred writings, that Joseph Smith uses. And so he exercises his authority in that kind of a way. But Ellen White is different. Ellen White's different from these prophets. She, she has visionary experiences. She clearly wants people to read her writings and take them seriously. But nevertheless, she makes it abundantly clear and consistently clear throughout her lifetime that these writings are not to replace scripture. And this, I think, is where you start to see Ellen White being radically different than the other prophets of the 19th century. She calls her writings lesser light, a lesser light. The Bible is the greater light. And she even goes to the, the point of saying if people would just simply read the Bible, they wouldn't need to read her writings. And those are very radical things for a prophet to say. I mean, she's having these experiences. She's having these visions. She clearly wants people to read it, and she wants them to take it seriously. But at the same time, she says, wait a second, I do not replace scripture. And there is no other prophet that had the success that Ellen White did that's saying the same thing. I've heard this in my Adventist upbringing, that Ellen is unique compared to religious figures like Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy because of how she held up the Bible, you might say. Wow. But are we just mischaracterizing those other traditions? Would they actually argue the same thing about their own prophets? 
In episode one, Michael Campbell mentioned that a woman in his mom's Bible study told everyone that Adventists treat Ellen White's writings as more important than the Bible. He learned later that that wasn't true, but I want to make sure we're not turning around and misrepresenting other groups in the same way. Ivan asked David about this. Certainly Adventism adheres more closely to traditional Protestantism than those other two faiths do. And I think that's been part of its recipe for success. If you think about this as a kind of religious ecosystem and different groups are trying to find their niche, right? How do you meet a need that's not being met? How do you gain a following in a, you know, in a competitive religious marketplace? So you have movements like Christian science and, and Mormonism that depart quite radically in some respects from traditional Protestantism. And then you have groups that are very orthodox and very conservative in their Protestantism. I would use another sort of 19th century movement like the Campbellites, the Disciples of Christ, who are very conservative in the particular theology and culture that they develop. And then you have something like Seventh-day Adventism, which kind of exists with a, a little bit of a foot in both worlds. It's very traditional in some respects, and yet it also opens up this flexibility, opens up these avenues to other kinds of points of emphasis, like the Seventh-day Sabbath, including you know visionary answers to the great questions of millennialism, which had vexed traditional biblicist Protestantism for two millennia. And so she, she does not offend Protestant sensibilities as deeply as some of these other groups do, but she also has this visionary component that allows for growth and adjustment and reform in ways that a very closed biblicism of other groups can't quite accomplish. I would say in comparison to the Latter-day Saints or Christian scientists, Seventh-day Adventists are the most adamant about the biblical adherence of the, the vision. So, for instance, Latter-day Saints would... What say, David is talking about here is that in the visions of Joseph Smith or the kind of revelation that Mary Baker Eddy experienced, the content of their visions didn't stick to traditional biblical content. But what he explained about Latter-day Saints and Christian scientists that I think is really important to realize is that they do believe that their visions and resulting content are adhering to the spirit of the Bible. Like in the same way that Jesus came and brought new light to the biblical story and it added to the canon of the Bible, that same kind of thing can happen again. And that's what these visionaries believed that they were doing. So while it's maybe not entirely fair to suggest that Eddie and Smith's traditions are non-biblical, it is fair to say they are non-traditionally biblical. So with that specific understanding, it is true that Adventists are the most biblical in the sense that we adhere to more traditionally Protestant understandings about the sufficiency of Scripture. The differences are there. The, the question, the, the subjective question is, are those differences proof of the superiority of one or the other? But I think the sense of the difference is actually quite relatively accurate. Some of it's, you know, in the eye of the beholder because, you know, Adventists will say that the proof of the truthfulness of the movement is its biblical adherence. Of course, you've got groups on, you know, the more conservative side of Protestantism that would say Adventists aren't biblical enough and that the very presence of a figure like Ellen White is proof of a disrespect of the sufficiency of the Bible. So, depending on where you stand on that spectrum, Adventism either looks, you know, more biblically traditional or less. 
but I think in terms of defining itself against other 19th century new religious movements in the United States, I think the church is being completely accurate in saying that it's the most biblically bound of those movements. I've heard this idea that Ellen championed the Bible my whole life, but until researching for this episode and having these conversations, it never quite struck me how odd that is. Like, here's this moment in history in which prophets and visionaries are popping up. It seems like there is a novelty and excitement about this because maybe God is revealing more to his people. But the Adventist perspective is that God used Ellen to point people back to the Bible. Like, the shiny new thing about Ellen White is that she is pointing you back to the shiny old thing. It kind of seems like, what's the point of that? Why would God bother using this kind of approach to, in some ways, say, don't worry about the new approaches, keep paying attention to the old one? In the end, it seems like the truth about Ellen White's uniqueness is maybe way less exciting. She's not actually special for miraculous exhibitions of superhuman strength or breathless visions, but she's special for having miraculous exhibitions of superhuman strength and breathless visions and tirelessly pointing to the Bible. Which to me, in many ways, is less exciting, but stranger and more wonderful. The Conflict Audible is produced by Types and Symbols, an independent creative studio as a companion to The Conflict Beautiful, a new hardcover NKJV edition of Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series. We've also put together a reading plan to help you work your way through The Conflict of the Ages in a year. Learn more at theconflictbeautiful.com slash read. This episode was produced by me, Ivan Ruiz Not, with help from Olivia Ruiz Not and Alex Prouty. Additional production support by Ryan Becker from the Absurdity Podcast. Thanks to Kevin Burton and Tim Poyer for pointing us in some good directions and answering a lot of our questions. And to Kirsten Archer for her research assistance. Thanks as well to the readers of the Eyewitness Accounts. Ben Amoa of the Oracle Podcast, Jose Briones of the Disruptive Adventism Podcast, Dr. Danzi of the Adventist Reflections Podcast, Justin Koo of the I'm Listening with Justin Koo Podcast, David Prouty, and Steve Prouty. Many thanks especially to our guests Kevin Burton and Dr. David Holland for taking the time to talk with us for this episode, and to my co-founder, Mark Cook. And please, please know that people being on this show or helping out with it or being related to us does not in any way mean that they agree with everything or anything we say, nor does it mean that they endorse or support the conflict beautiful. They are just really nice people trying to help us do a good job at understanding and explaining Ellen. If you want to learn more about Ellen White from the people she entrusted with her estate, visit whiteestate.org. We are in no way affiliated with them, but they have a lot of great resources. Also, if you're a really nice person who can help us understand and explain Ellen, let us know. Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out? Do you know a ton about something we've touched on? Did we miss an important point? Do you have questions? Do you just disagree? We probably want to talk to you. Visit theconflictaudible.com to get in touch. Yeah, there were many other prophets in the 19th century. Big deal.